please join me for a brief word of prayer before we get started to look at God's word. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to um, gather as a body of believers to uh, think about what you have done for us, uh, which is um, beyond what we truly know, um, which we will come to know in time. We thank you for the understanding that you've given us at this point. We ask, Father, that you would... Uh, Speak to our hearts now. Help me to communicate in this brief period um, something about Jesus. May we appreciate him all the more as a result of what we hear. Uh, and may we take seriously the great thing he has done for us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, last year in Minor Minersville, PA, uh, the police department received a note in the mail. Uh, this was a different note because inside, when they opened it, uh, they found $5 and a note written to the police department. Uh, when they were looking at the outside of the em envelope, it had an interesting return address. Uh, it read, title, Filling Guilty, address, Wayward Road, Anytown, California. Inside the note, as police chief Michael Combs went on to share with the local news station, they found this note. It said, Dear... PD, I've been carrying this ticket around for 40 plus years, always intending to pay. Forgive me if I don't give you my info with respect, Dave. The fine was for a 1974 parking ticket that was in this eastern Pennsylvania town that at that time was only $2. And of course, he had sent in what he thought would be the interest of $3. Uh, I guess he hadn't checked the recent price because the ticket, that specific ticket that he had received was actually currently, uh, in 2018, $20. But he was given the ticket back in 1974 because he, uh, he was parked in the wrong place, but he had Ohio State license plates, and unfortunately, they didn't have the computer systems at that time to track out-of-state tags, and so he was able to, to get away. But what was interesting is that for all these years, he had been carrying that ticket around because uh, he had felt bothered inwardly by what he had done. And finally, his conscience got the better of him, and he wanted to relieve his conscience, and so he tried to make amends by making a payment. But what's interesting is that Dave is not the only one who tries to relieve his conscience. Uh, there's been a growing trend with uh, the the... Uh, the change and uh, ability to communicate and share things through uh, media and social media with anonymity. Uh, one writer in an article was talking about this upward trend and, and said this, uh, a trend continues to take place in the online world of anonymity. Several websites offer the opportunity to air one's darkest confessions. Visitors put into words the very thing they have spent a lifetime wanting no one to know about themselves. There's an app right now that you could pull up on your app store, whether you have an Android or iOS, uh, an iPhone, and you could download it, and it's called Whisper. And it exists for this very purpose, to allow you to share with anonymity any confession that you need to make to, for your sakes, uh, unweigh uh, your soul. And that's not the only thing that's out there. There have been those who have found ways around the workings of Facebook so that you can post anonymously on different pages uh, to share confessions that you have. One confession that I ran across among several that I read was a young lady who said, 
I just want to confess that I'm about to wreck my boyfriend's life because I'm going to dump him and he has no clue that it's coming this week. Uh, and what we found is that often uh, the ones who are taking advantage, full advantage of these resources, happen to be college students. As close as NYU, they have a page, NYU Secrets, and people are confessing all types of things. They're trying to unburden themselves. Now, we might ask, why is there this desire and growing trend for public confession? I believe because everyone in some way knows that they're guilty. And the reality of that sin being weighing on them just like Dave, they're trying to find a way to clear their conscience. And they believe that they can do that in a safe space by uh, going out into the public world of social media and saying the deep, dark secrets <clears throat> under the cover of anonymity and, and believing by doing it that they can unburden themselves and at the same time, there'll be no form of retribution or accountability for what they've done. And so this has become a, a popular idea. Uh, scientists uh, have picked up on this and have started to, to do some preliminary studies. And one study uh, that I ran across, an article talked about this and said this, uh, scientists have found that the burden of having secrets can affect you in ways you might have never considered. Some people actually feel physically heavier when they are burdened with a secret. And the extra weight can skew how you navigate your surroundings. They went on to talk about the study and in that, and I was curious to find out, well, what types of secrets are these people keeping that makes them feel physically heavier when they're holding on to this secret or thinking about it? And it was things like this. Those, some of the categories that they had kind of after looking at 13,000 real-life stories uh, and they had just boiled down them into basically 38 categories of things. But some of those categories that people were holding on to secrets about were things like uh, telling a lie to someone, uh, harming someone, secret drug use, secret theft, violating someone's trust, infidelity, and the list went on. The sad thing about all this as I thought about it and read it was that uh, the process that was going on in these people's minds is, is, is what burdened me with sadness. Thinking that simply getting on social media and airing out their dark secrets that others did not know, to think that that would be a way to absolve them of the sins was futile. See, they're hoping that by saying it out publicly in some forum, that they'll find the forgiveness uh, to relieve them from what's happening inside, their conscience testifying against them that you've done something wrong and you ought to be held accountable. Because the reality is, although they speak out to the world through the uh, means via the social internet, there's no response. There's only silence. There's no one there to say, you've been heard and you've been forgiven. There's only silence. Now, you might ask, well, then who has the authority? Does the, the world have the authority to hear these grievances, these sins, uh, these confessions, and then free these people from it? And we know the answer is no. The world may listen, but the world can do nothing. Only God can respond 
in a way that makes us clean. And God has done that by his great mercy as we're here tonight. We realize that God has provided the only solution for people where your conscience can be cleared and you can be removed from that condemning inward feeling of the sin you've been carrying around with you for however long it's been. And God did that, as we know, by promising that he would send someone to take care of man and women's greatest problem, our problem of sin. And so guided by the Spirit of God, we read a text that talks about this coming one. Many years ago, David, by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110, wrote these words. He said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God promises something that stands out in the life of Israel. He promises that he's going to send the messianic king. And when he comes, not only will he be a king, but he will be a priest as well. Now, this was interesting because in Israel's history, if you know your Old Testament, uh, this would have been shocking to those readers because for them, those two things never could ever meet because uh, kings always came from the tribe of Judah and priests came from the tribe of Levi. And so how could there be a king who would come from the tribe of Judah who could also fulfill the office of a priest? As, as we know, when kings did try to cross over the line, they act in a presumptuous way. Uh, like Saul or like Uzziah, whenever they did that, God judged them for acting in a role that he had not called them to. And so it is interesting here that God is going to sum up in one person both roles. And God was so determined to do this that he repeated this later on, many years later after the exile through a prophet named Zechariah in chapter 6. We talked about there would be a day the one who was called the branch would come. He would be a king and he would be a priest on his throne. And so we say, where and how will this person show up? And as many years later, through the life of the person of Jesus of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, that we see that both of these things are fulfilled in Jesus. As Brother Steve reminded us this past weekend, if you were here for service, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the messianic king. But it's what he did on Good Friday that lets us see him entering into the office as a priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after a different order of priesthood, and that's how he's able to be both priest and king. He became, by his indestructible life, uh, inducted into the order of Melchizedek, those who were king-priests. And so that's how God solved that problem. And so when we come to Hebrews 5, we get to see uh, laid out for us how Jesus meets the qualifications of what it takes to be a high priest. Because there is a reality that all of us as human beings need someone to stand before God from us, for us. We have to have a priest. And what the scriptures tell us is that for us, our high priest is Jesus Christ. Let me go to Hebrews 5 and let me show you what the requirements for a high priest are uh, here in the text. Hebrews 5 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, I like the way Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary on these verses lays out the three criteria here. And I want to share those with you tonight. Uh, In the text, you see the three qualifications being these three things. Uh, First of all, uh, you see in the text where it says in verses 1 and verse 4 that one of the things that a high priest must be able to do is that he has to be appointed or called by God to the office. The second thing that you see according to verse 2 is the reality that he must be able to sympathize with men. And thirdly, according to verses 1 and verse 3, uh, he has to offer up an atonement, a, a sacrifice for sin so that the people can be accepted by God. Now, for those who don't remember about priests, let me just kind of remind you about this whole priestly role and talk a little bit about the high priest. For the priests uh, uh, in the Old Testament, the reason that they came about is because in the Old Testament, no one... No human being, that is, could just simply barge into God's presence. If you had decided to do that, you had decided upon yourself one day that you were just going to enter the, enter the temple uh, there in Jerusalem and walk into the uh, most holy of places where God's presence was uh, shown through, the, uh, through this, this light, if you will, that, that, that resonated above the cherubim where God sat enthroned. The instant penalty for that would have been you would have died. And so God, because man is sinful and God is holy, but God wants to have a relationship with humans, appointed representatives from men to stand before him who had to do certain things, and these were priests. But then even among the priests, there was only one chosen to be the high priest. Uh, and what the high priest was was the, basically the spiritual leader over the other priests. He carried around two things called the Urim and the Thummim, which was to help to discern God's will. And he had a special role, that is, that once a year on the Day of Atonement, he had the privilege uh, to enter into God's presence by means of a sacrifice by the shed blood of another, that he could go in and offer it for himself first to cover his own sins. Then he could go in and make atonement by offering up blood of a sacrifice for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Uh, And then he would do that once a year. And if he wasn't right, he would die himself. But God had chosen him to stand in the gap to represent the people. And so this was the job of the high priest. You can look up more of that in Leviticus 16. Uh, And in light of this, we get to see Jesus fulfill all three of these qualifications of what it means to be a high priest. But Jesus does it in such a way that he fulfills it in a way far greater than any of the descendants of Aaron had ever or could have ever done. Let me take up the first qualification uh, that he has to be called and appointed by God. Jesus was called and appointed by God. Simply think back to his baptism. You remember when he was baptized and all of the gospels carry that that when Jesus was baptized, something unique and special happened. God spoke to him and said, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Here quoting some from Psalm 2 and then quoting from Isaiah as well, recognizing that Jesus was the one that God had chosen. How do we know that he was appointed? Because God gave him the spirit. That is, that's exactly what the word Messiah means. He was anointed 
by God to fulfill the role. Here in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews sums it up for us, and he recalls Psalm 2 and pulls back and together Psalm 110, and he says this. He says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest for, forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus meets the first criteria. He is one who has been appointed and called by God to serve as a high priest. Not only that, but Jesus can sympathize with us when we come to him in prayer. And this is necessary for the high priest to be able to do, to be able to have the right heart when he goes to sacrifice for the people, uh, not to have the wrong heart toward the people who are struggling. This is one of the very reasons why the Word of God, as John 1 says, had to become flesh. He had to become like one of us so that he could understand what it's like for us to live in the world that we live in, a sinful, broken world, not from an omniscient standpoint, but from a standpoint of experiential knowledge. He understands what it's like to live in a world where things don't go always the way you want them to go, to live in a world where people are sinful and do things they shouldn't do, and to have to suffer and deal with pain, and to know what it's like to face temptation in life, yet Jesus did it without sin. And because he did, he felt the full weight of temptation. Unlike us, when the weight gets heavy at some point, we often buckle under the weight and give in to temptation. Jesus never did, so he got to feel the full load of the temptation to sin, yet without ever sinning. And we see uh, in the garden the climax of this in the life of Jesus, when he learned in the garden what it meant to be obedient to God. What is the true cost of obeying God as a human? And he understood what it's like to be in a place to desire to be freed from something and asking God to help. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 puts it this way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. John MacArthur says here that his crying out to be saved from death, quoting the Greek there, saying being saved out of death, uh, not that he wouldn't go into death, but that God wouldn't leave him in death, that God would bring him out. That he was saying ultimately what Jesus was praying for in the garden was the resurrection. That God would save him and rescue his Holy One from the grips of Sheol and death and bring him back to life. But what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand, because Jesus walked on this broken world, because he suffered pain, because he dealt with heartache and grief and disappointment and abandonment by friends and rejection, because he dealt with all of those things, he's able to understand when you and I go through pain. And when we pray to him and we pour out our heart to him, Jesus is not just sitting there distant and aloof. He understands what you're going through and he's able to sympathize and have compassion upon you when you request for him. That's why he meets the second qualification for a high priest. But then there's a third thing, which is the sacrifice for sin. Friday morning, early into the afternoon on the cross, that old Roman cross that we sang about, Jesus Christ was not just dying on a cross like a criminal. He was doing the role of the high priest. He was offering a sacrifice on behalf 
of the people to God. Because he hadn't sinned, he had to make no sacrifice for himself. He was fully able just to make a sacrifice for us. And that's what we see him doing on the cross. But he makes a sacrifice that's far greater than any of the sacrifices that had been given under the old covenant. Because the sacrifice he offered was a one-time sacrifice because it dealt with sin permanently. Now, what was interesting about the old sacrifice that the writer of Hebrews goes on to argue in later chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 as he lays this out is one of the things that the old sacrifices could not do, the animal sacrifices, it might grant to you ritual purity. That is, in the religion of Israel, you could be granted back a right place before God so that you could continue to be a worshiper. But the problem was the animal sacrifices was never able to do for us what was needed, which was to clean the inward person. He could never free, those sacrifices could never free our consciousness. And that's why Jesus Christ's sacrifice is so much greater because his sacrifice has the ability to really get where where the, the real issue is at, the inward conscience. He can sprinkle us inwardly with blood so that inwardly we're cleaned. And when we're inwardly clean because we are granted divine forgiveness, we never have to worry about sin ever coming up again. And because he's able to grant us divine forgiveness that is permanent, we never have to feel that our conscience convict us or to condemn us because when it does, we can always appeal to the cross of Christ. And so whenever my sins come up again, all I have to do is take them to Jesus' feet and say, he already paid for that. The other thing that's beautiful about what Jesus did that never happened with any of the, with any of the animal sacrifices was that the way to God was open back up. Matthew records at the end of his gospel a unique set of circumstances that happened that said to us that the game, the game had been changed Forever. Notice what he says at the end of the gospel. He writes these words. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The curtain here is the curtain that divided the holy place in the temple from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant sat and where God's presence was seen that no man but only the high priest could enter once a year. When Jesus died, when he had done his work, when he had said it was finished, it was really finished. Because then in the temple, uh, it was torn from top, that is from heaven, down. And the way to God was opened up again. And so now we had, uh, as the, the temple represented Eden, now the way back to God was made open to all human beings who would willingly come to Jesus in repentance and ask him to grant them a relationship with God. The way to God is open again. He meets the third requirement. And it's that reason that the scriptures say to us that we do have a priest who advocates for us right now and intercedes for us in the heavens, not in a shadow of a temple, things made here on earth, but in the real temple where he sits at the right hand of God. How do we respond to this truth about Jesus? Well, the reality is you don't need whisper. You don't need an anonymous Facebook page to set your conscience free. You do that by coming to Jesus, and he is able to give you what whisper and Facebook cannot grant to you. 
He is able to give to you divine forgiveness and clean you from your consciousness. And whenever any of those who would raise up your past, you can tell them to look to the cross of Christ. It is because of what Jesus did on Good Friday so many years ago that you and I can have a relationship with God right now. And that is the beautiful thing about what Jesus did. He has the way of lifting our sins from us. I remember a number of years ago when I was in my teenage years and I had been praying because I had heard a sermon that had greatly convicted me uh, in a Bible study. And then and I shared this story some time ago, but I still remember I was in a church, a little Baptist church called New Faith Baptist Church. And I was remember that morning, that Sunday morning, sitting on that pew because that whole week, because of the conviction of uh, the message that had come out in the Bible study, I had for the first time in my life realized that not, I wasn't someone else who needed salvation. I needed salvation. And my sins felt on me like someone had taken a weight and just placed it around my neck. And all week long I was praying, God, will you please forgive me for my sins? And I could not lift the weight, that feeling of sin and heaviness off of myself. I, I couldn't get it to go away. And finally, that Sunday morning, as I sat in that small old Baptist church, I remember sitting there on the left-hand side of the, that wooden pew, sitting there, and I opened up my Bible to start reading. It fell open to Mark's gospel. And in Mark's gospel, I came to the place where the paralytic who had been let down through the roof, and those red-letter words jumped off the page as if they were speaking to me, Son, your sins are forgiven. And when those words came off the page, that weight that I had felt all week long lifted off of me as if someone had walked up to me and said, do you mind if I carry that for you? See, the, the weight had been taken off me because it had been placed on Jesus. And that's what this is offering, what happened on Good Friday. Jesus is willing to take the weight of whatever sins that you're keeping, whatever it is that's secret that's holding you back, Jesus is willing to bear it for you. Lay it at his feet. How do we respond to what Jesus says? For those of us who are believers, the writer of Hebrews is clear, and he writes these words to us. He says to us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to it with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another uh, to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews says to us, because Good Friday has come, you can draw near to God. And because you can draw near to God, draw near to God. There is a throne of grace waiting on you.